I started thinking about what my first series would be here. See, I like to teach in, in Bible study series. I like to work through 10-week, 12-week, you know, three-month-long kind of deals, six-month-long kind of deals. Uh, it's just kind of the way my brain operates. God's gifted me in those kinds of ways to think through and process through things that way. Uh, and so I started to think, hey, I'm the new guy here. What's going to be my first series? And like we did two weeks on New Year's resolutions, but come on, that doesn't count, right? All right. It's two weeks. It's supposed to be like a six-month thing, right? And so here's what we're going to do. From now until Easter, I want to start a new series called this right here, On the Same Page. And the premise is pretty simple. We're coming from different backgrounds in here, right? Like we got, we've got some cultural differences in this room. Like some of us are from the area, some of us very much are not, all right? So we got some generational issues in here, some differences, We've got some, uh, some regional differences. We've got some ethnic differences in this room. And it's the glory of God and the credit to the gospel of Jesus that he would unite people from all of these different places and realities into one room. Nothing else on earth can do that. But here's the thing. Those differences are there whether the gospel unites us or not. And so... When I say certain words, especially seeing how I'm the guy that talks more often than anybody else, and I'm one of the newest people here, when I say certain things, you think it would be beneficial for us to all be hearing the same thing? I think so, right? If we're going to chase after the same things here, if we're going to pursue walking deeply with Jesus and making disciples of all nations, starting in Nashua and going everywhere else, and we're going to do that together, then maybe it would be a good idea for us to all kind of be on the same page. Amen? Now, here's a caveat. If we are a healthy, growing church, there will always be new people here, which means we're always going to have to be explaining ourselves over and over and over again, always. To, to get to a, a, a time and place where everybody knows everything and everybody's on the same page is actually a bad thing because it means that we've grown stagnant, right? So we're always going to have to be explaining ourselves. But we got a lot of people in the room right now, and maybe, just maybe, we can spend our Sunday mornings this winter getting a head start on things, right? Yeah, I think so. So, on the same page, and here's the premise. When I say gospel, what do you hear? When I say other vocabulary words, Christian vocabulary words like scripture or mission or stewardship or worldview, are we all thinking the same thing? I hope so. We're going to spend some time pulling, pulling all those things together. So this morning, I want to kick us off by just asking the question or just stating it this way. When I say gospel... I want you to hear, you ready? Legal reality. Well, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> I, was a, I was on a pre-law track in college before I was called to ministry. I hate politics and I hate law even more, right? I literally felt called to ministry in a constitutional law class going, man, I hate all this stuff. But follow me here. When I say gospel, I want you to be thinking in your head, to have it locked down in such a way that it's a knee-jerk reaction for what you put things framework-wise together. Legal reality. Colossians chapter 2. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing. And in verse 13 and 14, we're going to read this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the what? To the cross. Now, there's a lot going on in this text that can seem like some pretty lofty ideas and unless you have a pretty good knowledge of the rest of the bible there's a lot of things that don't actually make very much sense in there there were some things that he said that lean on depend on previous knowledge of things in the bible kind of like what we were talking about in the video right we've got this culture that understands certain things is already thinking certain things and then when those words come out they're supposed to mean something pretty weighty and unless you know what those things are well you're kind of lost so here's what I want to do this morning. I want, to, I want to put my finger on Colossians 2. And so if you've got one of those little ribbon things in your Bible, put it there. And let's flip back to the book of Romans real quick, which is something that Paul wrote, we think, before Colossians. Flip back to Romans. It's to your left. Chapter 6. So if we can lock down some ideas that Paul first gives us in the book of Romans so that we can understand Colossians 2 well. We'll come back to Colossians 2 at the end of our time today and really do something with it because it's going to be fun. All right. So, the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans, um, a lot of y'all know that Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible, but the honest truth is that Romans comes in a very, very close second. All right? I love the book of Romans, and here's why. I tend to be a very analytical guy. Uh, I like putting the pieces of an argument together from beginning to end, kind of the logical steps of an argument. And that's exactly what Romans ends, is. Paul, at the time he was writing this, had not yet been to Rome. He had never met anybody there. He didn't know of any major theological or, or disciplinary issues that he has to address like he does in all of his other pastoral epistles, all the other letters that he writes to, Ephesian, to, the, to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to the Philippians and all them. All right? he, he had, he's not addressing issues. He just basically writes them what a lot of theologians described as his magnum opus his greatest work and it's this logical argument for the gospel step by step from beginning to end without any big hiccups in the middle and so he just connects the dots and so in the first couple of chapters of of romans paul lays the groundwork that all people everywhere have rejected the good wise creator king that's a problem right if he really is good and wise, if he really is creator and we've rejected him, there's, there's an issue there. And then he moves on from there to, to say that God gave us the law for the specific purpose of showing us just how we have rejected him. So it's not just simply this nebulous idea, oh, we've rejected the good king. No, no, no. He gives us his law so that we can know we failed here and here and here and here. And oh my goodness, it's starting to add up. And he moves on from there. And, 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 and that's why we get texts like Romans 3.23, which I bet a lot of people in this room probably have memorized. It says that, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of who? Yeah, that all people everywhere have fallen short of this standard. They've fallen short of this law that he's given us to show us just how we have rejected it. That's also why in Romans 5, Paul calls us, God's enemy. 
Uh Uh-oh, we're starting to get weighty here. This logical argument from beginning to end of just why we need a Savior, just how desperately we need God to intervene is starting to pile up on us. And so Paul says, not only have we rejected the good, wise creator king, he's given us the law to show us, and this good, wise creator king probably ought to do something about the fact that we're all a bunch of people who have rejected him. And that is where we read Romans chapter 6. Look at the first part of verse 23. Let's see what is owed to those who exist in the category of God's enemy. For the wages, and that's a word we're going to come to talk about here in a second. For the wages of sin is what? Now there's a lot of words in our culture, in, our, in the English language, that have both a a positive meaning and a negative meaning, but for some reason we only ever use it one way or the other. Uh, Jealousy is one of those words. Uh, Most of the time we hear the word jealous in a negative tone, right? right? And so immediately we go, oh, it's not good to be jealous. But it's possible to be jealous over good things, right? Like if I know that somebody is deceiving my wife and kids and is going to harm them, should I sit back and be like, I don't want to seem jealous, No, there's something in me that's going to well up to protect them, right? There's a good form of jealousy. But because we only ever hear jealousy in the negative tone in our culture, many of you are going, that doesn't sound right. I don't know if that's okay. That sounds sinful. And that's why when we read about God being jealous in the Old Testament, we're going, is God allowed to be jealous? Yes, because there's a positive way, a sinless way to be jealous. But we only ever hear it in the negative sense, and so in our culture, it sounds funny. Another word like that is serve, all right? We, we've created a culture for ourselves that service is only existent in a relationship that's subservient, that, that somebody has been oppressed in some kind of way, but there's a positive way to serve, right? You can serve out of love and joy for someone else. I, it is not oppressive for me to serve my wife. It is an act of love, right? Yeah, and so, but because we have this culture that oftentimes only uses it in a negative way. Well, that, you're supposed to be equals. No, I'm to serve her, right? Wages is exactly that on the flip side. What are wages? Payment, right? It's the payment for a job, something that's rightfully owed to you, right? So if I sit down with you and we agree for you to do some kind of work for me because I'm, I'm not the handyman at all, and so I probably have a lot of stuff around my house that I could maybe get some help on. And so let's say you and I sat down, we agreed to terms, we lined out the job, gave a timeline for when it needed to, to be finished by, you show up at that time, do the work well, complete the job in its fullness, and then I stiff you on the payment. Not only am I a jerk, but I'm probably about to be sued, right? Why? Because you have rightfully earned, you have deserved the payment for what we talked about, right? We laid out the terms and you did what was expected of you and you earned it. You rightfully deserve the payment that is coming from you. And so in our culture, we oftentimes talk about wages in the positive sense. But listen, you can also very much earn something in the negative sense, right? You can earn a trip to jail for breaking the law. Maybe some of you need to go to jail for breaking the law. I don't know. Paul says that that the wages 
the thing deserved, rightfully earned for my sin and your sin is what? And when the Bible talks about death, it, it's not just talking about spiritual death. It's talking about, not just talking about physical death, it's talking about spiritual death, excuse me. To be separated from God forever. The Bible has another word for that. What is it? Hell. Wait a second. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that seem a little harsh? I mean, aren't we all pretty good stand-up people here? I mean, we're all in church on a Sunday morning. We could be doing some far more heinous things, right? We're pretty good people. I mean, aren't we, aren't we doing okay? I mean, if we were to line up all the people in our lives on a scale of morality, I mean, surely we're leaning more towards the front of that line, right? Some of y'all may have some issues we need to talk about. Yeah, I think most of us in here would say, you know what, I'm a pretty decent person. Like literally, I could think of neighbors on my right and left who are not doing some good things probably on a Sunday morning. I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it seem like the punishment doesn't fit the crime? Eternal, eternal separation from God in a place called hell for sin? Like one little white lie? One little straying glance at that attractive woman. Eternal punishment? Two problems with that type of logic. One is that there's not a single one of us in here, me included, that only has one little this or one little that. I've got a giant pile of one little thises and one little thats that I accumulate for myself every day. The mountain is growing. There's a bigger problem, though. A far more serious problem with that logic. At the end of the day, our view of God is too small. If we ask the question, let's play a little thought experiment for a second and say maybe you really only did have one little this or one little that in a whole lifetime of perfect righteousness before a holy God. Would he still be just in sending us to hell? The answer is still yes. It's because of this truth. The heinousness of a crime is directly proportional to the value of the one being offended against. That's a lot to process, so I'll say it again. The heinousness of a crime is directly proportional, linked to, tied to, the value of the one being offended against. And I can give you a parable that'll illustrate that for you forever. I promise you'll never forget it because I'm weird that way. All right. Let's say you and I are walking down the street talking about who knows what, like just random conversation. I can't believe uh, uh, Roger Goodell decided to show up to the Patriots game today. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Just random conversation. We're walking down the road. We pass by a house. We look over across the fence into the yard. There's a little boy and he's got his attention locked on something. And so we want to figure out what it is because he's definitely into this. And so we're going we're gonna to explore it a little bit. So we walk over the fence, lean over a little bit, try to get a good look. And we notice that this little boy is pulling the legs off of a grasshopper. Doink. Boink. 
Miss Linda's going, oh. <laughs> How are we going to respond to this kid? We're going we're gonna to tell him to stop, right? Now, regardless of how you view a grasshopper, we shouldn't treat living things that way. I don't know if that's a shock to you. We just shouldn't do that, all right? All right? Uh, because I'm the pastor, because I'm the teacher type, I'd probably call that kid over and be like, hey, listen, God's created us to love and steward, take care of his creation. We, don't, we, don't, we, we ought to have dignity and respect for those kinds of things. Don't do that, man. But you know what's going to happen after that? We're going to walk away from the fence continue our conversation laughing about how that kid was a little weird, right? But let's rewind our story a little bit. Tell it again and change something. You and I are walking down the road. We look over the fence, see the kid with his attention fixed on that little thing, and we go over there to explore it a little bit more, and we look, as we look closer, he's pulling the legs off of, instead of a grasshopper this time, it's a squirrel. <gasps> How are we responding this time? Slightly elevated response, right? All right, rewind our story. Let's tell it again. Walking down the road, talking about how the Cowboys got ripped off for the second time in three years by an officiating call against the Green Bay Packers. All right, hush, Dave. All right, We're, we're talking about who knows what. We look over across the fence, and this time the little boy is not messing with a grasshopper or a squirrel. It's a puppy. your visceral reaction is growing right all right let's rewind our story one more time walking down the road look over the fence see the little boy trying to pull the legs off of a human baby that is exactly the reaction we're expecting What's changed in our story? It's the same story four times, but with a different victim. And each time the story elevates, your your reactions are growing more and more. How far is he going to go with this? The only thing that has changed is the value of the one being offended against. That boy is not going to get a stern talking to. This story is making the 24-hour national news circuit, and that kid's going to juvie. The heinousness of a crime is directly proportional to the value of the one being offended against. My little white lie to tell my three-year-old that we're all out of Doc McStuffins episodes on the DVR, you'd do it too. <laughs> Listen, it's wrong. It's wrong, but the consequences tied to that are pretty minor. Me telling the same little white lie sitting in a witness stand in front of a federal judge brings far more heinous consequences, right? The value of the one being offended affects the heinousness of the crime. So my little white lie to you and me may seem small beans, but to an infinitely holy, infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinitely good, infinitely just, infinitely wonderful, God is an infinitely heinous crime. See, the reason why we say silly little things like, oh, that doesn't seem like it fits, is because we have a tiny, far too small view of who God actually is. Oh, we would never say that if we saw him correctly. 
for the wages. The thing properly deserved for my sin and for your sin is death. Oh, but Lord, that is not all Paul wrote. And those of you who know your Bible well know that, so, that Romans 6.23 is only halfway through. Let's read the next part. For the wages of sin is death, comma, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of death, he offers life. Okay, but how do we get that? Flip back to Romans chapter 5. Some of you may not even have to turn a page. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 6. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him uh, from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, there's that enemies I was talking about a second ago, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, brought back together to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So even though we deserve to die, even though we deserve to pay the penalty for our infinitely heinous crime, instead, he offers us what? He offers us life. But that doesn't just magically go away. Something handles that. What handles that? God handles that. He handles it himself. God the Father sins. God the Son, Jesus, puts on flesh and dwells among us. He lives the sinless life that I'm not capable of living and neither are you. And then he goes to the cross as a perfectly innocent man. So hear me. If the wages of sin is death, I deserve to die, but Jesus doesn't. He goes to the cross as an innocent man. And the Bible says that he takes the sin that belongs to me and the punishment that I deserve to pay. He says, nah, I'll take that one myself. Give it to me, I got this. I will own it. Verse nine said that we are justified by his blood. Justified is a legal term. We use it more now in church vocabulary, but it's, it's meant for the courtroom. It means the point at which you are declared innocent. That point that you move from the category of guilty to now innocent. The official point that that happens is called justification. You've been justified. And so now we can read Colossians 2 better than we could before. Flip back there. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14 is huge. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its what? Legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the whole reason why the Romans perfected the art of crucifixion in the first century was because it, was, it made a lasting impression on those who, who saw it play out. All right? They, they perfected the art of slowly executing a man. They would extend it out for as long as possible. And it's, the whole reason is because it was a very public culture and it happened on the side of the road or in the public marketplace. And everybody who walked by that cross and saw that person dying a very slow death knew you don't mess with Rome. And they would literally take the charge of crimes against them, the rap sheet, and nail it as a sign on that cross to say, mess with Rome this way, this is the punishment you get. Jesus had a sign on his cross. It said, King of the Jews in three languages. Catch the picture of what Paul's saying here. There's Jesus as an innocent victim was nailed to a cross. God took the rap sheet that belonged to me, and if you know him, that belonged to you, and he nailed it to the execution tool. When I say gospel, I want you hearing legal reality. If you belong to King Jesus, there has been a cosmic status change on your behalf. If you belong to King Jesus, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If you belong to King Jesus, you have been made a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. If you belong to King Jesus, you are now no longer an enemy of God, but through no merit of your own, you have been reconciled to this eternal good wise and creator king. And Lord, help me. I really hope you keep hearing me say the word if. If you belong to King Jesus. Because the reality is to reject him as king is to also reject his work on, his, on your behalf. To reject him as king is to also reject his work on your behalf and he will not share you with any lesser king. He doesn't play that game. So how do we respond to this text? What do we do with this? Maybe you're here today and you want to fix the whole I haven't submitted a King Jesus thing yet. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing for a bit in order to give you some time to think through some weighty realities. Are there things that are off the table for you when it comes to following him? Things that if he were to say, I want that, I want you to shuck that and get rid of that one and change this. Are there things that you would say no to? It's a legitimate question. The answer is yes. I would beg you to ask the, to answer the question, why? Do they really compare? The answer is that there's not anything that's on, on the table or off the table. There's not things that you would struggle to give to him, submit to him, 
And what's holding you back? There's literally nothing. So maybe you're here today and for the very first time you want to respond to this king who saw fit to save you when there was nothing in you worth saving. Oh, how good is he? See, we talk a big game about guys who run to the fire instead of away from the fire. We do that for our friends and people we value. He did it for people who were his enemies. Different level of nobility. I had nothing to offer and neither do you. Oh, but how he loves. So if you're here today and you want to respond for the very first time, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And You can do that. You can do that in your seat. If you need to come talk to me or one of our deacons will be down here at the front, you can come do that. But that's not all who needs to respond today. Maybe you're here today and you've historically always identified yourself as a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason, you've counted your sin as a small thing in comparison to this holy God. You've had too small a view of him and so you've been nonchalant or cavalier about things that he's called you to walk away from. It's your opportunity to repent this morning as well. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing. If you need to talk, I'm down here. Father God, you are a good God. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Colossians 2. Thank you for taking the debt that I owe and putting it on your own shoulders. If it were up to me, I'd be toast. But you are righteous and you are good and you are more than enough to accomplish what is needed. And even though I have nothing to offer you in return, even though I I probably slow your kingdom down, you've called me to yourself. You have reconciled me to the good, wise, creator king. God, for those of us in here that have taken a too light-hearted view of our sin. Would you call us to repentance this morning? Would you help us see that you are big and that you are beautiful and that you are lovely and that you are good, infinitely more than we can imagine? And that those realities call us to a vigor to root out things that harm our relationship with you. God, would you give us courage to act on the things you're calling us to act on this morning? In your name we pray. Amen.